HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca, home of New York's craft cider. I love New York. Plan your getaway at visitithaca.com. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this journey through culinary history. And the history of cocktails is something we'll be talking about today. But the history of cocktails in America is heavily skewed towards the male's tale when, in fact, it's only half the story about the cocktail's rise to social prominence. Women are largely absent from the tales of the cocktail until probably the late 20th century. But they were making, serving, and writing about the scene and its art long before Jerry Thomas's famous bartender's guide. Dr. Nicola Nice recognized the history gap while working in the market research advising liquor companies. Now, along with her entrepreneurial gin liquor business and website, she has extended her research to historical liquor literature, in which she strives to fill that gap of the missing women. Nicola is an Oxford-educated sociologist turned spirits brand entrepreneur who's made it her mission to write women back into cocktail history, from which, as I said, they've been all but erased. She joins me today to talk about the history of women in cocktails and the extraordinary influence they had on its history through the books that they wrote. Welcome, Nicola. Hello. Thank you for having me. This is, I mean, it's, I, first of all, I applaud you for <laughs> devoting your time to, to bringing women out into the forefront on this very yes. popular topic. I mean, cocktails are so, you know, they've they've had a bit of a renaissance in the past, oh, I'd say five or 10 years. And you, I mean, you have just really, I mean, you went back to research basically, right? That's right. Yes. Can you tell me a little um, bit about how you, what, what got you into this and, and how that happened? Absolutely. Um, so as you said in your introduction, I'm a sociologist by training. So I've spent the last 20 years in the fields of consumer insights and brand strategy. And for most of that time, working in consulting for Fortune 500 companies. And about 50% of my work during that time has always been in the alcohol space. And it's always been very interesting to me as a researcher to understand people's everyday behaviors. Uh, so when and why 
we drink cocktails and how and who we're with and how we want to feel. And of course, how that connects up to our societal values. Those two things together are ultimately what makes up a brand. A brand is both a product and it's also an experience and uh, has a personality and an identity. So I've always loved that connection between behavior and social values. And one of the things that I always observed during my research um, in this space is how when it comes to the story of the cocktail, as it is told today, it feels very much like it is dominated by the bartending story. Um, which in turn is dominated very much from a male point of view of alcohol. And this was something that I saw being reflected also in my research around the current brand landscape um, in spirits, especially. And the idea that really women are perhaps considered to be not as interested in spirits, um, that they, you know, they drink things that that men buy for them or that men are naturally more inclined uh, to be interested in hard spirits and to, to have more knowledge about them. And this was something that I found in my research with consumers was absolutely not true. So I've always felt, and I'm sure you'll agree, um, that women are very much the chief entertainers of the home. And certainly when I go into people's homes and I observe the way people are being served, um, it is very much being driven by the hostess. And that goes everything from the food all the way down to what people are drinking. So this led me to question also the way the historical narrative was being told, right? So mm-hmm. if women are playing an important role today in the way the cocktail is served in the home, isn't there reason to believe that when we go back in the past, they also would have had an influential role. So that was really the hypothesis that I set out with on my path mm. in research. Well, I mean, it's no surprise um, to, to historians, I mean, that women were the primary brewers in early history and not just witches, brews and, and mm-hmm. alchemy, but um, indeed uh, beer makers from, you know, even in, in um, ancient Mesopotamia, the women were the ones who were, who were, it was a it was a domestic job, right? I mean, That's right. Yes, I mean anything that happens in the domestic sphere and the private sphere has always been controlled by women. Um, the problem is, is that because it takes place in the private sphere, a it's not written about as much, mm-hmm. and b it's not valued right. as much. Right. Um, and fast forward to modern day, I mean it's it's very similar to a lot of the issues that are current today. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so what, what, in, what books in particular, I mean, how did you go about, uh, finding the particular books written by women? Because those were probably, uh, deeply hidden in large part, right? <laughs> yes. I mean, I started off much like anyone would in today's internet day and age with a Google search. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so Googling history of women in the cocktail or, or, women and cocktails or women cocktail writers, I find my, found myself coming up short. So it's very easy to, to do a search around the 10 most influential cocktail books ever written. You can find this on 100 different websites. And it's always the same list of people. Um, as you mentioned, Jerry Thomas mm-hmm. and, and a long list of, of famous bartenders, let's say, who, yes, very much influence the way the cocktail 
is served in the bar. Um, but it wasn't as simple to access that same information. So I started really, as I said, with this sort of hypothesis that, well, maybe the way women were thinking about cocktails was more related to what they were doing in the home. So I needed to broaden out my search and look at what women of the contemporary period with Jerry Thomas were writing about. And that's really how, of course, culinary history is an area that has been well documented. Mm -hmm. So that's really where I started my search. I, I, I sort of thought, well, what if, what if I looked at some of the big culinary writers who also wrote about household management as they did at the time? You know, they wrote really more compendiums as opposed to just cookery books at that time. Um, and that's really where I started. That's right. The other thing, okay. the, oh, sorry. The, the other thing that I did was I wanted to map what was happening um, from a temporal point of view in the world of the cocktail and the key sort of stages that the cocktail has been through with what was happen happening in women's history. And that, that was the part that started to really fascinate me was the overlap in the way uh, women's history, the emancipation of women has overlapped very much um, actually uh, with because of broader social change with the evolution of the cocktail. Mm -hmm. um, and that was something that really began to fascinate me. Yeah. Well, you had mentioned um, that the women, when you found some of these books, that their point of view, they had a distinct point of view um, and quite different from, let's say, the male bartender's books. What, and we'll talk about some of those books, but what people preface it by, um, and I'll preface it by asking you, what did you feel the major difference was in the terms of writing about these? Yeah, the um, that's yeah, that's a great question. So I think that there are primarily three big differences. Um, the first is that the way that th women think about the use of liquor in the home. So it's not just going into a beverage, but why are they creating liquors in the first place? And they're creating them, first of all, as a way to preserve seasonal um, fruits and vegetables and other ingredients. So mm -hmm. just as they were making jam and, and making shrubs, um, making syrups, they were also making liqueurs and cordials. Um, and as you said, in, in some cases, distilling also. Mm -hmm. uh, they were not just using those, what they were making in um, beverages. Uh, so they were making them, uh, including them in other types of recipes for desserts, for example. But more importantly, these things had other uses in the home. Um, so they had uses um, as health tonics, for example. Uh, women were also responsible for the health of the household as well. So that's the first big difference, I think, is what I, I like to think of the, the bar in the home being an extension of the pantry. And that's really how women thought about it and wrote about it. Mm. Well, you know, it's interesting because I looked at your website um, and to see, you know, your list of books you have, you've collected quite a library, I must say. <laughs> and still growing. <laughs> yeah, as, as, as that does. And when you're in research, yes. um, and as I looked over the page of, of the library of all the books that you are you know, referencing, I was so surprised to see, well, I guess not that surprised because I had read them, I, but for my audience, I'll tell you, I was surprised to see how many of the books that I was quite familiar with from culinary research that were included in your list and thinking, oh, well, I never really, 
I never really thought of it that way. I really never thought of these um, women as writing about you know, liquor and drinks and drinking. But in fact, you know, there it is. Aside from how to set the table and which side, you know, the, the wine glass goes on and when do you serve a liqueur and et cetera. I mean, that's all in there, but the, there were quite a few. So actually, I would love to for you to talk about a few. Or, or before we talk about a few, I, yeah. I just, I really would like you to relate this acute story. I read it in an article about you in the New York Times that talked about one of the early books you found, not the earliest book, but a book that you found early in your research. Um, and how it kind of tells the story of, of women getting, you know, why they maybe were not up front, perhaps, in the uh, the bookshelves called Bacchus Behave. <laughs> yes, I think I know the story that you're <laughs> referring to. <laughs> um, so, th- yes, I mean, just kind of building on what I was talking about a moment ago. So the, the, the second area that I think is very different about the way women write about alcohol is not just its uses um, around the home, but also, as you rightly point out, the etiquette around serving it. And this is a common theme that goes throughout the time period and that we're looking at. And the main area that I focused on is a period of 70 odd years. So from the sort of mid 1800s through to prohibition and just after prohibition. And what's interesting about the way women think about serving, yes, part of it is when is the Roman punch served and when are liqueurs served and when is brandy served and Mm. in what glassware and so on. But part of it is also just the etiquette around drinking. And this was something that became naturally a very big topic (laughs) up to including and during and after prohibition. Um, As we all know, um, the, the, the dynamics around prohibition um, and the temperance movement in general, women played a big role in that, of course. Um, but women also played a big role on the other side of prohibition in attempting to socialize drinking and bring it back into this realm of etiquette and the etiquette around drinking and the importance of, importantly, responsible drinking. Um, we can come back to this topic perhaps a bit later. So Bacchus Behave is one of my favorite <laughs> um, cocktail books from this era. So it's a, a book by a journalist uh, by the name of Alma Whitaker. Uh, she wrote for the LA Times, uh, Los Angeles Times, and she was a big, she, she wrote primarily about lifestyle and um, society in general. And she published this book in 1933, so right after uh, Prohibition ended. And the subtitle of the book is The Lost Art of Polite Drinking. <laughs> so what's what's lovely about it is it's not actually heavy on recipes. Instead, it's more heavy on the right way to drink, the right way to serve, the right way to host. And of course, the importance of women in that. One of the quotes from this, um, from the book is, men will be the last thing uh, civilized by women. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And uh, this is a very difficult book to find, despite I think its importance in cocktail history, because of course, you know, coming out of prohibition and setting the tone for the way drinking um, will continue through the mid-century is a really important 
period in time. And it's very difficult to find an original copy of this book. And I do, in fact, have an original copy of this book, and it's one of my most treasured possessions. And one of the things that I first noticed about my copy when I got it was the front cover had very faint what appeared to be scribbles (laughs) on it. Um, And what this told me was that this was a book that was owned by a mother. (laughs) And it was a book that most likely, because it was used regularly, was probably kept out. Uh, Perhaps it was kept on a bar, but it was picked up by tiny fingers (laughs) as a result at some point and drawn on. And to me, it's those, it's those marks that really tell the history, the, the story, the personal story of a book, which to me is something that adds a lot of value to it. Unfortunately, in the and vintage book market, <laughs> having too many pen marks will detract from the value. And indeed, this happened to me, where my daughter, who was three at the time, got hold of my copy of Backers Behave because my copy was also out as it was something I referred to fairly regularly. And yes, let's just say she added her own notations um, to the book. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. That's great. Um, well, you know, it's interesting because you you talk about that and that book was written, as you say, uh, after Prohibition in 1933. And the cocktail uh, has a rather short life in itself. I mean, the cocktail didn't really come around until the end of the the 19th, well, actually early 20th century, end of the 19th century. Correct? Yes. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So um, Jerry Thomas's um, um, book is is widely sort of considered to be the moment crowning the moment that the cocktail really arrived, right? So it was it's the first known compendium of bartender recipes to be shared among professional bartenders. And so it's 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 a piece of work that even modern day or 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 piece or, or works that followed can be traced back to in some way, right? In yeah. terms of its influence. Um and that was published I I believe in um 1862 um or i think around there around around that time um and so what was what's been interesting to me is to to see okay if this is the first time that we've seen cocktails appear in print um in this sort of um very comprehensive way how do we know how can we trace and document at what point the cocktail may have entered the home um, and one of the best ways to see that is through the writings of the people who were documenting what was happening in the home. Right. So that was a, that was a pathway that I've followed. Um, and you mentioned some of the these these very famous books from around that same time, written by women. We haven't touched on who some of these authors are yet, but um, you know you'll be fam- very familiar with it. Isabella Beaton, Eliza Acton, Eliza Leslie. And as you said, they were also writing about beverage and beverage recipes. However, they were mostly covering things like punches, um, some cobblers, some cups that had been around for a while. And these bar, what we might call bar recipes for cocktails, individually mixed drinks, did not appear in women's writings um, until until really the turn of the century around 1900 1904 mm-hmm. 
Um, so it took a few years to really penetrate. And I think um, when you look at the writings of women during this period, they they always seem to be a few steps behind possibly what's happening out in the bar. Um, so it's interesting to see how and when they get picked up right. and how they get contextualized in the in the home and the way that people socialize and entertain in the home versus a manual which is instructing a professional how to make a drink. Correct. And also, um, one has to remember that women were not welcome, nor were they really allowed in taverns. Taverns were very new, too, and they weren't allowed in taverns during that time. So they weren't exposed to that culture. That is a very important um, point to make. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I, I strongly believe that the, that women were really the ones who, they may not have invented the cocktail, but they definitely invented the cocktail party. And one of the main reasons why, as we've seen many times during history, we can look at the history of gin, we can look at the history of tea consumption, and it's the same story uh, where women have been excluded from the male public spaces where uh, these things are being consumed. And so they have to create their own spaces and they have to create their own rituals. And I believe that the cocktail party in the US was very much an evolution and an adaptation of the tea party. Um, It was that time of day. It was after lunch and before dinner where, you know, the Victorians love to have a reason for having a a gathering, a social occasion that started as tea and, and, and small bites and as alcohol was eventually added in, eventually became the cocktail party. And of course, that became institutionalized with right. prohibition. Absolutely. Well, I want to talk about some of these specific books um, when we come back after a short break that might surprise a lot of you. Hold on. This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca, helping you to plan your next getaway. Ithaca has waterfalls and wineries, art and theater, outdoor recreation, and family fun. The area is famous for its glacier-carved gorges, co-op-run businesses, and cultural influences from Cornell University and Ithaca College. Plus, you can't beat the beauty of Cayuga Lake, the largest of the Finger Lakes. Beyond 150 waterfalls and some of the region's best hiking trails, Ithaca is cider. The area is well known for its local cideries, which are leading the way in America's cider revival. You can hear from the region's cider makers directly on HRN's series Hardcore. There's something really special about Ithaca's climate for cultivating delicious apples steeped in history and terroir. Let Visit Ithaca help you plan your next trip to this hub of food, drink, culture, and agritourism. Home of New York's craft cider, I love New York. Get started at visitithaca.com. Okay, we're back, and I'm talking with Nicole, Nicola, I'm sorry, I'm talking with Nicola Nice, Dr. Nicola Nice, who um, has collected, made it her mission to collect books written by women on the cocktail or on the on liquor in general and and its uses. And um, Nicola, you had said that um, in your 
search for books. I, I read someplace where you had written that if I were a woman in the late 19th or early 20th century, where would I have gotten my recipes for drinks? I would imagine I'll finish that. And um, this kind of speaks so clearly to where the books that you have collected, you know, what, what they're all about. Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, almost certainly um, I, I wouldn't have been reading a bartending guide. Right. Right. Um, let's talk about some of those specific books. Yes. Um, so I think we, in our earlier conversation, talked a little bit about the key phases in the cocktail. Mm-hmm. And so I think that there are key works that are important as um, you know, the, the, the Gilded Age evolved, um, you know, into the 20th century and ultimately into prohibition and post-prohibition. So if I was a woman in the 1860s um, who, was, who was keeping house and I was looking for ways not just to serve a drink, but also to manage my household, I would have looked to, if I was in the U.S., uh, someone like Eliza Leslie. Um, Eliza Leslie um, was the U.S. equivalent, I like to think, of <laughs> Isabella Beaton and yeah. Eliza Acton, the two Elizas. Um, and she really wrote prolifically on liquor, um, everything from how to make a rose brandy um, to how to make a punch to how to 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 create fruit cordials to treat different illnesses um, in the family, for example. Um, she is also famous, as I'm sure you know, for inventing the cupcake, which yeah. is one of my favorite facts about her. <laughs> um, but I, I think if I was a woman around that time, um, of course, I, I may have picked up Isabella Beaton as well, just simply because that was such a famous piece of work um, that would have been in a lot of women's households, even here, not just in the UK. Right. Oh, I mean, Elizabeth Beaton, I mean, she was that was she was very popular. I mean, and so many of the cookbooks, they're not called cookbooks so much, but like she did, and she started it, I suppose, the book of household management. I mean, it was all about, as you stated earlier, you know, how to how to run a household. I guess, exactly. How to be a exactly. good wife. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, and and those are really the books that were through the through the late eighteen hundreds. Those were the books where cocktails appeared. So in household management books, in cooking books, and also in etiquette books. Um, so if I was a lady of a household who was wanting to know exactly the right way to serve people and and set the table and so on, I may have picked that up, or I may have picked up a book by someone like Mary Sherwood, for example. Um, who wrote about manners <laughs> in general um, and and talks about how a lady knowing how to mix a cocktail or specifically um, a cup or punch was actually an important hallmark of being a lady, um, which was which is interesting to see. As we move into the turn of the century, we start to see beverages starting to become their own thing. Um, so starting to become separate in the way that they're being written about um, as we get to around 1891, 1893, uh, we see some books emerging that are specifically on the topic of beverages. Uh, one of my favorite, uh, just simply by its title, um, was by Mrs. Alexander Orr. Bradley, um, and it's called Beverages and Sandwiches for Your Husband's Friends by <laughs> One Who Knows. 
this book uh, contains a lot of um, beverage recipes, um, as I think around 35 or so beverage recipes and <laughs> 27 or so sandwich recipes. Mm. It's famous also for being um, the first place where the now famous tuna sandwich was first written about. Um, but what's interesting is is seeing how women are recognizing mixed drinks as a way to entertain, um, as a way to uh, get to their husband's hearts, if you like. Um, I think that this is also reflected in what I think is the first example of a full cocktail book being written by a woman, or at least being uh, published by a woman, um, collated by a woman, which was just a few years later in 1904. Christine Herrick and Marion Harland, who were a mother-daughter, Marion uh, was Christine's mother. Uh, she was a very famous writer in her own right, and mm-hmm. um, all of her children became writers too, including Christine. And they wrote a five-book con- compendium called The Consolidated Library of Household Cooking and Modern Recipes. The first book in this compendium is called The Modern Hostess, and it's all about um, the the who the, the reason that they they wrote this book is they were frustrated that books either fell into the category of how to cook or how to serve. And this is meant to bring the two together in a five um, compendium library. But the fifth book uh, covers beverages and covers what can be recognized as bar cocktail recipes. And what's interesting about the preface to this compendium is Christine writes in the introduction that she included beverages and cocktails as a way to get the men of the house's interest in serving and hosting. Mm. And she thought the only way that a man was going to read any of this is if it included liquor recipes and that would get his attention. Um, so it's just interesting to see because I think the the conventional narrative is that women are not interested or don't know about alcohol men do but actually if you look at it from another direction women were really giving a giving the men of the household a job to do <laughs> when it came to entertaining you know because they didn't want to get involved in any of the other details around the food and the serving and so on but but they would take an interest in the alcohol right and how things have changed. Yes, indeed. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, and, and the list, it goes on. You know what? One mm-hmm. thing, one, I didn't even, I looked at the very first one on your list. I didn't mention those because I got a copy and I, I just had to look at it to check to see what in particular was written about. And that was way back 1824. That was Mary Randolph who was right. really the first cookbook that, you know, of American, um, one of the first, um, American cookbooks. Absolutely. So that was, that was interesting that that far back and you got me to look at some of my old books on the shelves (laughs) as well to look at it. And it, you know, and it varied, I would pull one out from, let's say, um, 18, it's a book of like, Oh, now it's not on my desk, but household management, another one of like a household management type of things. And, um, night, probably turn of the century, maybe 1900. And there is um, no mention of liquor in that book. 
which surprised me actually. But then I <laughs> then I looked forward at to a, an early book from 1940, 1942, and that was Woman's Home Companion. And it mm-hmm. is quite, um, this is just post, you know, well, the first publication I think was 30, maybe 36. So it was, you know, post-prohibition. And the chapter heading even says quite, you know, specifically that liquors were removed. Oh, into- the, the mm-hmm. chapter is intoxicating liquors and intoxicating liquors were removed from the book and replaced with fruit juices and things. So, right. It's, so it's wonderful to see all these other books that you have collected that are on your list on the, on your website. And, um, and then the next book I, my eye catches is one that is a very important part of, of the, the social aspect of cocktails and drinking, and that's toasts. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, so this one, even though this book doesn't include any recipes, um, it deserves a place in the library because it's really representing how um, I think how empowered women were around drinking. Um, that they could, that a, a woman, Janet Madison, um, could write an entire book on toasts, um, and it actually includes one of my favorite toasts um, of all time, uh, which I would love to share with you because I think it really illustrates how much fun women were having um, socializing and drinking. Please do. I can't wait. Uh, Raise your glasses, everyone. (laughs) Raise your glasses. (laughs) Here's to the girl who's strictly in it, who never loses her head even for a minute, plays well the game and knows her limit. And still she gets the fun there's in it. Oh, here, here. Here, here. <laughs> yeah. Cheers to her. Yes, indeed. <laughs> um, that, that's wonderful. And actually, I should have closed with that wonderful thing. But I, there's still so much more to talk about. Um, uh, what And toasts, of course, being, you know, it's a very, you know, talk about etiquette across the world. I mean, every country has their, their specific, um, across the country, across the world, all nations have their specific toasts and, and etiquette, you know, concerning them. And I think how wonderful that somebody thought to write a book about it. That's Right. I, absolutely. I, I personally think that the toast is an essential and integral part of the cocktail. Um, you know, the cocktail, mixing a cocktail is in and of itself an act of hospitality, Right. So mm-hmm. the, the difference between making a cocktail for someone and opening a beer or a bottle of wine is that you have made this for them in that moment. Right. Mm-hmm. And so immediately and this goes back to the the old days of drinking from the communal punch bowl. Mm-hmm. Right. It's a it's a, it symbolizes a, a trust and a bond uh, between the two or more participants. And the toast is what commemorates that moment and makes it meaningful and memorable. So I almost always try to have a toast whenever I have a cocktail, because to me, it is part of the experience. Yeah, I think it just you have to stop for a moment and appreciate what's in your glass, right? And then and then take that sip and enjoy it with, you know, with whomever. Um, yeah. In these books, I don't know, on your website, your website, first of all, I have to tell everyone, your website is pompandwhimsy, W-H-I-M-S-Y, 
pompandwhimsy.com. And um, it's, it's the list of the books that you have so far on it that you've collected so far, as you say, is still going. Um, I'm sure it's only part of your collection uh-huh. or what you have at, at hand. Of these, uh, I don't know, what, 50, what, 25 books or so that are listed or more, um, would you say that there's um, a, a you see a change or uh, you know something specific happening from let's say the early 1800s? Well, you say that was more making things for the home and other uses as well. Um, but where would you say there are certain lines drawn where where there was a a uh, a change in writing about liquor? So I think it was right around the turn of the century um, with the emergence of the new woman um, and women gradually becoming more emancipated. Mm -hmm. It's impossible to talk about the temperance movement without also talking about suffrage and the suffrage movement. And these two things, these are two movements that coalesced, importantly, um, in 1920, right? Mm -hmm. So in 1920, both the 19th um, and the 18th Amendments came into effect. And this was a very important moment for women for many reasons, but it was also a very important moment for the cocktail because this is the time at which the cocktail did leave the bar where it had been the domain of men and was forced into the home where it fell into the hands of women of the hostesses and I was as I was mentioning earlier that's really the time at which the cocktail party was truly born and if it wasn't for women being the hostesses it's not just the cocktail that we wouldn't have wouldn't have become mainstream but it's all the things that we associate with the cocktail the accoutrement like the cocktail dress and the cocktail ring and the cocktail table and cocktail napkins these all evolved around women and the way that they were socializing the cocktail, right? This, right, this became the material less culture, a, right? The it's material just... culture around it. But what you can see actually from these books are the precursors to this. So even if you, I mean, we talked about the Toast book, which was 1908. Um, if you um, sort of go through the next five to seven years um, with the books that followed, you can start to see women accepting cocktails into their you know, women's dictionaries and, as you said, home companions. Um, 1915, we have the book Dainties for Home Parties by Florence Williams. And this was a book of um, for dance suppers, bridge parties, receptions, luncheons, and other entertainments. Mm. These are primarily um, w- 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 women's occasions, right? So women entertaining other women um, as as well as this becoming more mixed company, as I said, with um, with prohibition. But what's really interesting is just looking at the drink names in this book, you start to get a sense now of how much fun women are having with cocktails, which is a reflection of their sense of independence and emancipation, which was growing at this time. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have recipe, um, drinks like hijinks and ballroom and watch your step <laughs> right <laughs> suggesting that it, it, it they're, they're very um I think very indicative of 
the occasions that they they were consuming cocktails, right? Right. Um, so, right. Those bridge parties my mother was having. <laughs> wait, <laughs> <laughs> much later, but <laughs> <laughs> interesting. Um, it's it's just a fascinating subject, and I can see why you kind of went down that uh, rabbit hole of <laughs> collecting and reading and researching for all those for all that time. Um, because it's it really puts another it just you know a whole new view on the whole cocktail industry and and right. and drinking and and liquor and of course pairing with what you do too and now you are into making your your own libations can you tell us a little bit about pomp and whimsy i would love to um so actually pomp and whimsy predates the the cocktail research. So I, I really came into this by way of the entrepreneurial um, and business angle originally. So to back up a little bit to what we were talking about at the very beginning of the interview, um, professionally, I was working in the spirits industry as a consultant to really understand consumer behavior um, and brand strategy, brand positioning and innovation in spirits. And I felt very strongly that the industry was leaving money on the table because they were not taking women seriously as consumers. And this just came about as an observation from a brand point of view that the brand and marketing landscape does not really reflect the true spectrum of consumers that are out there. And there are very few, if any, brands that really have the hostesses, the women um, at the heart of the DNA of the brand. And this was something that as a woman frustrated me. Obviously, I felt as a consumer, I was not being taken seriously. Um, As a researcher, this intrigued me, right? So why is this? Is there a reason why you can't market um, spirits brands to women in a, the same aspirational and luxury way that you market to men. Mm-hmm. And as an entrepreneur, I felt like this was a missed opportunity. So that's what really inspired me to start an alcohol company. And I was researching a lot with women on, as I mentioned in the beginning, what they look for in spirits. I was trying to understand what might be missing from that experience and started to hear very consistently a desire for spirits that could be sipped straight, could be without, you know, being overproof or um, having a high alcohol burn, could be mixed very lightly, um, had a subtle but intricate flavor profile that came from botanicals as opposed to flavorings Mm -hmm. um, and could be the base of a crowd-pleasing yet simple cocktail. And obviously having a very good understanding of the landscape of categories, I I thought to myself, well, it sounds like what you're describing is gin, (laughs) right? So gin is a lightly botanically infused spirit that is the basis of more cocktails than any other spirit. Or or mother's ruin, as it was (laughs) called. Well, we can come to that also. (laughs) Um, But then when I would suggest that and propose that to uh, these women that I was interviewing, 
um, and this was all across the country. So this was, you know, over several years. I, w- I, f- I felt like I was getting a lot of pushback that um, there was this association of gin as um, being a grand- grandfather's drink or tasting like Christmas trees, um, you know, a bad experience in college or a dislike of tonic. Um, and I felt like this sounded to me like a, a cognitive dissonance going on between what gin sounds like in concept and what it actually tastes like. Mm -hmm. And so I I thought to myself, well, what if I could make what I think you have in mind when we're describing the idea of gin? So that's sort of what sort of prompted me to start Pomp and Whimsy. And then, (laughs) of course, this newfound interest in history, um, wanting to understand, okay, well, if gin is is the root of most cocktails, let's understand the history of women and cocktails. But of course, going into the history of gin itself and discovering that 150 or so years ago, first of all, the way people were drinking gin was different. So people, you know, this was long before tonic um, and long before the martini, people were adding sugar and bitters to their gin. um, And that's primarily how people were drinking Mm -hmm. their old-fashioned way of drinking spirits, if you like. Um, Or they were buying these infused and sweetened gins that were called gin cordials. And what was really interesting in this research, of course, and I alluded to this earlier, is that these gin cordials were very popular with women. So women would serve them at their social occasions. As I said, the tea party, as it became more of an alcohol-infused event over time, the gin cordials would be served in those occasions. Women would create their own beverage recipes. Those recipes would get passed on from mother to daughter. And this earned the spirit the nickname Mother Gin. And so what I wanted to do with Pomp and Whimsy was pay tribute to this. So pay tribute to this lost style of gin, this gin cordial, and see if I could update it for where where mixology is today. Um, And then at the same time, of course, Uh, pay tribute to the role that women have played. So the whole mission of the company is about writing women back into the story. Um, Very nicely done too, I must say. Thank you. Um, And your, so what you do have a product and that is the gin liqueur, Pomp and Whimsy, right? That's right. Um, What, and what, tell me a little bit about this. Yes. So Pomp and Whimsy is a modern cordial style gin. So for those of you out there who are gin drinkers, you may be familiar with London dry style. You might be familiar with pink gin. You might be familiar with Old Tom style. Um, If you are interested in the landscape of gin, then you absolutely have to try a gin cordial um, (laughs) in its modern form. So Pump and Whimsy is distilled from scratch um, in an organic and carbon neutral distillery in downtown Los Angeles. We take a neutral spirit base um, that we infuse with about nine different, mostly traditional gin botanicals, which we then re-distill and that creates the gin base. And then we further infuse that gin base with nine more botanicals, exotic fruits, and florals. And we let that sit for about 10 days, and then we filter it and very lightly sweeten it with organic cane sugar. And the spirit is low in sugar. So unlike other liqueurs, I think sometimes when people hear the word liqueur, they're thinking this is going to be very 
incredibly sweet strong, and, and sweet and strong. Very, yeah. Yes. Um, this is less than a quarter of the sugar as of something like an Aperol or a St. Germain. So it's been designed to be sipped straight. It's also lower in proof. So it's 30% alcohol by volume, which mm. is lower than, you know, a, a dry gin, which can be anywhere up to 45%, mm-hmm. um, which means, you know, you can have two of them, right? It, um, um, and it's also incredibly versatile. So, it's a little bit like um, Hendrix and St. Germain, if you're familiar with those two spirits, mm-hmm. had a baby <laughs> and you get the best of both worlds. <laughs> so you have this beautifully elegant liqueur that is not overly cloying or sweet that you can sip straight over ice. It's absolutely wonderful topped with any kind of bubble. Of course, tonic because it's gin. It has to be good with tonic, but champagne or sparkling wine or even just club soda. And then, of course, it makes an absolutely incredible addition to classic or modern gin cocktails. Um, you can make the best margarita that you've ever had uh, with pomp and whimsy in place of the orange liqueur. Um, the margarita itself is a cocktail that comes from the Spanish for daisy. And the daisy was originally a gin cocktail. So oh. there's 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 reason for gin even though that might sound weird to be in a drink like that. Mm. Um, it's, it's just wonderful. Well, it's certainly, that was, I mean, I can see the ad coming out for it already. It's great. <laughs> well, you've well you'll be able to taste very soon, hopefully. <laughs> well, it, you've piqued my interest for sure. Um, yes. And before we um, close, there's just something I wanted you to mention, because I think it's, it's all goes part and parcel with all this research you've been doing. And that is, in line with you know the creating these new gins, um, the Women's Cocktail Collective. Can you tell me what that is? Yes. Um, so as I said, our mission at Pomp and Whimsy is to give women back their rightful place. Right. So a big part of that is a rightful place in the history of gin and the cocktail. So that is what you see through our website, through all of the content that we produce, is trying to retell that story with women written into it, basically. Um, And that's a big part of what the brand does. But another aspect of giving women back their rightful place is also the back bar and bringing more diversity to the back bar. And this is not something that we can do alone. (laughs) It's going to take more than one women-led spirit company to diversify the back bar. And so in our effort to further this aspect of the mission, we decided to band together with other female founders to create a collective that collectively would bring more diversity to the back bar so we can go out together into liquor stores and bars and restaurants to give the opportunity to diversify to the buyers and the bartenders there who we have found want to um do do so they want to they're actively looking as are their customers Mm -hmm. to explore more um, diversity in spirits and to support more people from different backgrounds getting into the industry but importantly what we also do is support each other so you know being an entrepreneur is hard having a startup is hard Um, being a woman in a male-dominated industry is challenging and one of the incredible things about I think where we are in the modern day women's movement. So going back to this idea of cocktails mirroring social change, 
I think we're at a stage in the movement where women are really looking to support and lift the rope for other women. Um, and as more and more women reach positions of authority and influence and can do that, we collectively create this rising tide, right, that, that lifts all our boats. And that's really also what the collective is all about. If we can help each other, as opposed to seeing each other as competitors in an industry, we can make the world a better place, not right. just for ourselves, but for the women who come behind us. Well, as a consumer, I applaud, I mean, I applaud this work period, but, <laughs> but <laughs> particularly as a consumer, because um, I, I can't, tell you how often when I go into a bar um, that I would always look at the back bar and say, well, gee, do they have, I look, I said, but they have nothing that I want to drink back right. there. So, you know, I welcome, I mean, of course that has changed, that has changed over the years, but um, I welcome the, you know, including more diverse back bar with right. some of the brand, not that I don't enjoy, you know, a good well, I don't really enjoy a good scotch that much, but but <laughs> if I were a scotch drinker, that would you know that wouldn't be a problem. But I do tend to like some of the lighter um, beverages, and they're not there often. So I you know I look forward to see the changes that come about with this, and also as you say, raising the bar and, and helping one another in the industry. I think it's wonderful. You have shed so much light today on the history and background of cocktails of 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 liquor writing, of, of the literature involved, and um, as well as the modern-day culture of the liquor industry. So I thank you for sharing this and spending your time with me. Well, I appreciate so much um, you inviting me to talk to you. Yeah. It's been wonderful. Well, it's given everybody a little bit of a taste of the past. And again, I have been speaking with Nicola Nice, um, and her website is pompandwhimsy.com. And she is um, putting together quite a collection of original background history books that were written by women about liquors. And thank you for listening. Again, A Taste of the Past is part of Heritage Radio Network. And Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization that brings great conversations about food to you. So if you get a chance, go to the website, heritageradionetwork.org, and in the upper right-hand corner, you'll see a beating heart. Maybe you could give us a little love. Thanks for listening. A Taste of the Past is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like. Tell your friends. And please, join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.